0: you want to find uh, the scripture passage in your Bible this morning or page 297 on a a pew Bible that might be underneath a chair in front of you, Uh, you might want to find that because this morning I, I want to just dive right in. I just want to read our passage right away. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're just going to read the first three verses this morning. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 3. Then Samuel, who is the prophet of God, said to Saul, who is the king of Israel. So then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while Israel was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. There's our passage. Does it bother you that that's in the Bible? Pay attention to how emphatically we are told these are God's words. There's no typo here. The Lord sent me, Samuel says, Listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That repetition is like a flashing neon sign that says what you are about to hear comes right from God. Make no mistake. And then what God says is Saul is supposed to lead Israel's army to destroy a people group and kill everyone. Even civilians, even non combatants, even women, even children. Does it bother you that that's in the Bible? It's okay if it does. I think it probably should. It's in here, it's at least troubling, at the very least, this job that God just gave King Saul to do, would you, would you agree that's a terrible job? That's a bad job. I don't know how you feel about your job, but maybe you could feel a little better about it now. So, so what do we do with passages like this? Do we just skip it, lump it in with a bigger passage, pretend it's not there? Do we just chalk this up to, well, it was a long time ago, or, well, that was in the Old Testament, as if that helps? This is still the same God that we worship, and we're told He hasn't changed. Passages like this are troubling, and passages like this one get used to try to convince people, That the God of the Bible either isn't real or at the very least isn't like we're told he is in the Bible. He's not worth following. He obviously isn't good if he's okay with this. That's Richard Dawkins' point in his book, The God Delusion. Atheist Richard Dawkins. He writes this, the Bible story of the invasion of the promised land, which is part of what we're talking about here. He says, that's morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland and the Holocaust, therefore, or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds or the Marsh Arabs. The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. We tell our children this book should form their morals. At least I hope we do. So what do we do with this passage and Richard Dawkins' claim, which is basically, there's no way you should ever want to follow a God that would be okay with 1 Samuel 15.3. Dale Davis uh, commentator on 1 Samuel about this verse. He says, Our claim is only that Scripture is true, not that it is sanitized. It's a good thing to remember because this is not a very sanitary verse. And listen, even if we could somehow explain this one away, we would still have to deal with lots of passages like it in the book of Joshua, in the book of Judges. The problem, if there is one, The problem for us as we read passages like this has something to do with uh, what uh, an author and a a preacher named R.T. Kendall called the betrayal barrier. The idea of the betrayal barrier is is this. Anytime God does something or allows something that a person believes is... uh, or perceives to be some kind of betrayal, that becomes a barrier to closeness with God, intimacy with God, to trusting God, to following God, to believing in God. So if we believe that God is a God of love, and we should because He is, but if we believe our ideas about what that means, runs up against a passage where God orders the death of a bunch of children that can seem like he has betrayed who we thought he was and that becomes a barrier to intimacy with god over the next 4 weeks we're going to go through a little mini series just in this chapter first samuel chapter 15 I'm calling the whole series a bad, doing a bad job poorly. That's what, this, that's what this chapter really is about. Today, we're just going to look at the bad job. King Saul gets ordered to do a terrible job. And I thought we better just stop right here and deal with this job. How can a good God order this? How can a God order this and still be good? And what are the, how do we build a framework for, for thinking through passages like this? And then what are the implications in our lives? So that's, that's the only scripture that we're going to uh, have today. This is going to be a little more topical. Just some almost bullet points for dealing with passages like this. And then at the end we'll talk about why uh, dealing with this is important for us. So, about specifically this order about the Amalekites. I think it's important if we're going to make sense of this passage, we have to at least at first understand that this was not just a random, this is not God up in heaven saying, you know what I think would be fun today? I think if we exterminate the people group over there called the Amalekites, that would be, it seems like a good, good way to spend a Tuesday. That's not what this is. This is not at all random, but that doesn't mean it's not terrible, but I do want us to understand the history behind this order. If you're familiar with uh, the, the story of the Exodus, you're familiar with that Israel was in slavery in Egypt and God sent Moses to lead Israel out of slavery. If you're not familiar with that, don't worry. Just keep coming. We'll keep learning as we go. But if you're familiar with that story, you might also know the story shortly after they get out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. And then there's this story of this weird battle where Moses and a couple friends are on top of this hill, and there's this battle going on down below the hill. And every time Moses, as long as Moses raises his staff in his arms over his head, the battle goes well for Israel. And when he gets tired and he drops his arm in the staff, the battle goes poorly for Israel. Have you heard of that story? That's the Amalekites. That's these folks. And what had happened was God saved Israel out of slavery. And Egypt was taking them toward the land he had promised to give them and the Amalekites decided to oppose that plan. And twice, way before today's passage, 400 years before today's passage, twice, God said because of what they did to Israel, God was going to wipe them out and he's going to use Israel to do it. Now, that doesn't mean today's order isn't awful. It is. It just lets us know it's a decision God came to 400 years prior. So this people group has had 400 years corporately to take their lives in a different direction. And they haven't done so. Now, in another place, uh, God writes, says this about the conquest of the promised land. This, what I'm about to show you isn't specifically about the Amalekites like this verse is, but in general about the conquest of the promised land. We read this, Deuteronomy 9.5, God said, it is isn't to Israel, God said, it is not because of your righteousness or even your inner uprightness that you have come here to possess their land. Instead, because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out ahead of you in order to confirm the promise he made on oath to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I bring this up as part of the history and the background behind this, not because it specifically explains what is going on in our passage today, but it certainly tells us what's not going on. Israel's invasion of the promised land, and, and specifically today's, uh, this attack on the Amalekites, it's often criticized by Richard Dawkins and others as being ethnic cleansing, as being extremely racist. It's part of the, um, uh, it's, it's part of the oppression of people that the Bible is okay with, supposedly. None of that is true. The conquest of the promised land had nothing to do with Israel's racial superiority. It had nothing to do with Israel's moral superiority. In fact, if you can read the Old Testament, the whole thing, not just one verse here, one verse there, where it looks like God is ordering something really awful, and he is. But if you can read the whole of the New Testament and you come away with the idea that God likes Israel because Israel is somehow morally, ethnically, or racially superior to people around them, you don't know how to read a story because it's just not there. Israel's a wreck <laughs> morally, spiritually, Uh Israel does, though, become God's special chosen people. God does act on Israel's behalf in ways that He does not act on behalf of others. But it has nothing to do with Israel's superiority. It has only to do with some promises that God made to Israel's forefathers that God has obligated Himself to keep. Whenever we are reading any passage, really, but especially passages like today's, we have to keep God's promises that he has obligated himself to keep in the forefront of our minds while we read. God has made some promises God plans to keep. And somehow the destruction of the Amalekites becomes part of God's Good plans. The first promise we need to keep in mind is from the almost the very beginning. Just after the first sin in the book of Genesis. Sin entered the world through Adam. uh, When Eve was deceived by the serpent, the revelation tells us it was the devil himself. God, as he is pronouncing the curse, the ramifications of sin on people and on our planet. Within that, God gives His very first promise of a Savior, a Redeemer. God says to the serpent, that serpent of old, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring, your offspring, and her offspring. He, he, one of her offspring, will crush your head serpent, even though you will strike its heel. Here's what this promise is. God sent us, entered the world. God lets the curse fall on mankind and the planet we inhabit. But God says, a day is coming where I'm going to send a serpent crusher a curse reverser a savior a redeemer that's and God has promised from the opening pages of scripture maybe the major theme of the whole Old Testament is who is that redeemer how will we know it's him when he shows up so far all we know is he will crush the serpent even though he will somehow be uh, stricken and we know that he's a human being. He's a male offspring or descendant of the first woman, Eve. All right. Once God has promised to bring a serpent crusher who is a human being, a descendant of Eve. I mean, you know where babies come from? They, they're born to mommies. Like, uh, Right? Once God promised to send a Savior, a Redeemer, that would be a human being, a descendant of the woman, God had to pick some people group to send that Redeemer to. Whoever God chose, that people group was going to be very special. And He had to pick someone because He promised. As we keep going in the book of Genesis, we find in chapter 12... God chose a guy named Abram. He would later later rename him Abraham. And God made some promises to Abraham. Among them, these. God promised, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing to others. And then God promised this. I will bless those who bless you and that, that group of descendants that will become a nation. And anyone who curses you and yours, God says, I will curse them. And in you or from you or through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here's what just happened there. God has promised to send a Savior who will be a human being, which means he has to come into some family. God chose a guy named Abram, not because of his moral uprightness, Abram did some really terrible stuff. Story for another Sunday. But because God had to pick someone. God picked Abraham and he said, I'm going to make a nation out of your descendants. Abraham Abraham had many kids, eventually. But God chose one of them. His name was Isaac. Isaac and his wife had twin boys. God chose one of them, Jacob, whom he would rename Israel, and his descendants would become that nation. Why did God choose them? Because they were better than everyone else? No, because God promised to bring a Savior and he had to pick somebody. And so he chose. Whoever he chose was going to be special because they were chosen, not because they were special to begin with. Does that make sense? So God chose Israel to deliver the Savior, the the, the curse reverser, the serpent crusher, the Redeemer. And that's how God would bless all the families of the earth. So as we move forward through redemptive history, we get into the book of Exodus. God gets Israel out of slavery in Egypt, starts to take them to the promised land. When there are nations who curse Israel, what has God promised to do? Curse those who curse Israel. Why? Because God's a big meanie? No, because God promised to protect this nation, which is just a vessel through which God will deliver the Redeemer. He has previously promised to deliver. And so in all of these, in the, in the, these battles, in the conquest of the promised land, they happen because God promised to deliver a Savior into one family that would become one nation that would have its own land. And when these nations oppose that plan, they're not just opposing a different race of people. They're opposing the redemptive plans of God to save all of mankind. So that's why God acts on Israel's behalf. Not because Israel is somehow better, just because God had to pick some family to bless the rest of our families and praise God that he did. Another thing these sorts of passages show us, they're a reminder and a picture of just how awful the judgment of God is. God decided to bless all the families of the earth through sending the Redeemer. And if God doesn't deliver that Redeemer through the nation he promised, we are all basically the Amalekites before God. We are waiting for a fate much worse and much longer than meeting our demise on a battlefield. So, this isn't so far. This is not a one-off. God pronounced this judgment 400 years in the past. He has waited 400 years. Now he has decided it is time to pass that judgment. And all of these plans are a part of his plan to bless all of the families of the earth. Right? So maybe instead of focusing so much on the terrible thing he did to one family group, one people group. Don't let that distract us from, this is part of God's blessing on all people groups. Next, about passages like this, we have to understand that God, God alone is qualified to pronounce this kind of judgment. Um, this And these sorts, and there are others, where God puts a people group under the ban. No survivors. It's not about Israelite imperialism and enriching themselves and using God to do so. In fact, this is why the command is given the way it's given. This is why no livestock was allowed to survive either according to God's orders, because Israel was not supposed to enrich itself by doing this. This was not about Israel on the come up at the expense of other people groups. This is about Israel doing a very difficult job uh, being sort of the sword of God's judgment against some other people. And it's very important to understand only God is qualified to pull this trigger. That means a couple things. First, in a way it sort of lets Israel off the hook. Israel is not responsible for the wiping out of the Amalekites. God is. A little bit like I don't know who, uh, like, pushed the button or whatever that started the lethal injection which killed Timothy McVeigh. I don't know who that was. I don't know who threw the switch that started, that fired up the electric chair under Ted Bundy. But here's what I know. We shouldn't blame them for causing the death of those men. Should we? the responsible party is the power which ordered that those executions. So in McVeigh's uh, case, it was the people of the United States and the government of the United States. In the case of Ted Bundy, it was the people of the state of Florida and the government of the state of Florida. That's who's responsible for those men's death. We can debate. I suppose whether or not those were right or wrong, but we shouldn't blame the person who pushed the button or flipped the switch. Does that make sense? Israel's not responsible for the wiping out of the Amalekites. God is. Now, that may not make us feel any better about God, but it does one other very important thing it keeps us from getting behind anything like this today. Because God is done giving these orders. These were for one people group, one swath of land, in a very specific period of time, because God had promises to keep to deliver a Savior. He's been delivered. His name is Jesus. So so there, there are no more holy wars to be fought in this. God's not telling people to go wipe folks out any longer. That is not me saying all wars are unjust. That's not what I said. There's a difference between a just military action and holy war, though. And God can can do this because he's God. No one else can order this and be just. That's one way Dawkins is wrong about the difference between Hitler and this. God didn't tell Hitler to exterminate the Jews. God actually promised Hitler Hitler, you curse then them. I'ma curse you. And he did, and he is. Next thing to keep in mind about so this is not a one-off. God is keeping His promises. God alone is the only one who could do this and have it be good. And next, we have to keep in mind that God knows everything, including what will ultimately be best. One thing that makes First 1 Samuel 15.3 so unpalatable to us, like the death of children, uh, the violent death of children, is... It seems to us like God, he didn't give them a chance, right? He didn't give them a chance to be good people. He didn't give them a chance to believe. But here's why: our, where our trust that God knows everything has to come into play. When I say God knows everything, it is true That God knows everything that every Amalekite who had ever lived had ever done. And God decided it was time for them to go, the whole people group. But God's knowledge of everything is more than that. God doesn't just know what they have done. Because God knows everything. God knows everything that anyone in that people group, He knows what they would do if He allowed them to survive to be 100 years old. And we have to trust that God, know, God knows no one in that group would be righteous to the point of earning eternal life. God knows every person in that people group would not come to repentance and to believe in him. And that leaves us here. Jesus made really clear there are different intensities of punishment in eternal condemnation, eternal judgment. Jesus in a couple places said, you know, eternity is going to be worse for those folks than those folks. If we take Jesus at his word, like everyone who goes to hell forever and ever isn't going to be Hitler's roommate. Okay? We just, I think Jesus makes that clear. So if if God knew those children... Those Amalekite children would never grow up and be redeemed. Then allowing them to die as very young children before they could stack up more and more unrighteousness and wickedness was actually grace and mercy. God's knowledge of everything also means this. Only God can know what he saved Israel and what he saved the rest of the world by, by removing the Amalekites. The Amalekites were not nice people. They're the ancient version of the Taliban or something. But they're Al-Qaeda, circa 3000 B.C., Like if you had a group of Amalekites move into your neighborhood, you would want some action taken also. They constantly were producing the next generation of violently wicked people. Only God knows what he saved the rest of the world from by deciding to do what he did. We have to remember that. I just spoke uh, this last week to Bart and Amanda Dental, uh, a, a couple of our supported missionaries uh, who had uh, their little one was very premature. Most of you know, just checking in to see how they were doing. How they're doing is they love their healthy son who now weighs 10 pounds, which is good. Um, and he's growing, he's doing better. They have, they have to live where they're going to live. The doctors want him there for a year and they're bummed they're not in southern Mexico because that's where their hearts are as far as the mission. Uh, I tried to, to encourage them. They have no idea what God is saving them from by allowing what he has allowed. Who knows what might have happened to them, to their young one, had God allowed them to go. But God knows. You know, when it's really easy, let me save that for a second. I want to tell you another story. I sat with a, a friend of mine that I taught with uh, in Kansas City. Happened to have a chance to have a spiritual conversation with, uh, with this this older lady, and I asked her what she believed about God. She took a deep breath. She knew I was in seminary at the time, and she had the courage and the guts enough to Tell me her beliefs, which went something like this. You know, Matt, there is no way there's actually a God. Because um, at that time, um, do you remember the, the, like, the children's school, the girls' school, and in, in, in I think it was in Africa, that the terrorist organization, like, kidnapped a whole bunch of them and just took them away to terrible fates? Um. She said, there is no way there is a God who's good and who's in control if stuff like that happens. That was her argument. You ever hear anything like that? Okay. The same person, though, and I don't know that she necessarily did this, If they open up 1 Samuel 15.3 and read of God ordering the extermination of a whole people group. You know what they'll say? There's no way a good God could ever order something like that. Now, do you see the problem? In 1 Samuel 15.3, God orders the extermination of a people group that is constantly producing the next version of Al-Qaeda. When he orders that extermination, people say, well, that's not right. You can't exterminate that people group. Fast forward 3,000 years, when there's another people group that constantly is producing Awful, violent people. The same person will say, there can't be a God because he allows the people like that to continue. Well, which is it? What's a good God to do? Right? He gets criticized if he wipes a people group out so they can't do any more harm. Or he gets criticized for letting them, letting them go and continue to do what wicked people do. I don't want to try to convince you to like what God ordered in this passage. I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to like it. The best we can do is believe that somehow, in some way, this is ultimately the the most good for the most people. It is the best for what ultimately will be best. Best. And somehow we have to be humble enough to understand, to understand this. If God really did create everything out of nothing, we have plenty of evidence to suggest that there was a creator who created all this. Whoever that being is, if he created all of this and he knows everything, should we really expect to be able to understand everything he does and the decisions that he makes. I mean, honestly. When when we come to a passage in the Bible, or when God allows something to touch our lives, and we go, you know what? If God thinks that's a good decision, I, I'm not going to believe in him. There's no way I could ever trust or believe that, the, that a good God could ever do this. Do you, do you hear the arrogance that's in that? Here's what, that, here's what you're saying. Unless you tell me, everything I need to know, then I'm going to refuse to follow you. Well, who's following whom? You know, and, you know, we just can't expect. God's an awfully big subject to presume to have mastered. Sometimes the best we can do is, is go, I don't know how this is best. But I know the one who is best and always does what is best is in control. You know, when our, when our kids are young, when our kids are little, we often have to make decisions our kids do not understand and do not like. Isn't that true? In fact, you had better parents be making some decisions that your kids do not understand and do not like. If you just let their emotions run your house, you're not helping them. But we as parents, we have higher goals than making them happy right this second, and giving them what they want, right? We have a greater purpose than just doing what will make them happy at the moment. Family, your little kids were way closer to understanding you than you are to understanding the God and creator of the universe. Sometimes the best we can do is say, I know I don't understand. But because God is doing it, it must be what is best. Now, why is it important for us to have a a sort of framework for thinking about passages like this one where God orders a people group to be wiped out? Passages like this are important because that betrayal barrier thing I talked about earlier is a real thing. Reading through and thinking through passages like today's is a little bit like exercise for our brains, like lifting weights for our brains. Like for kids on the football team, if they they want to be lifting weights right now, not because they score points in some game next fall, but because it prepares them to hopefully be able to survive a game next fall, right? Working through passages like this is a little bit like training our brains to have that framework that says, man, that seems really awful, but God's in control. It's got to be good. Because at some point something's going to touch our lives and the lives of those we love, and it's not going to be a 3,000-year-old story. It's going to be me or my loved one who gets the diagnosis, who has the accident, who is the victim of some crime or something, Thinking through things like this at least builds like a scaffolding or a framework that we can hang, our, hang on to when our heart wants to say, it feels like God is betraying me. He hasn't come through. As always, it's important to look at the life of Jesus when we're reading almost any passage. okay. Jesus was constantly confronted with people who didn't like him, countrymen, Israelites. They knew the promises of God. They were waiting on the serpent crusher, the curse reverser, the king, the Christ, the Messiah. Why didn't they like Jesus? Because of the betrayal barrier. Because Jesus's the way he talked about what the Messiah would be was very different from what they expected. They felt like that was a betrayal of their expectation of what Messiah was going to be like. And so constantly, these people were coming to Jesus and saying stuff like this. Uh, uh, The point here is passages like this are important because they help us to believe when we don't fully understand. John 6, I could have picked up any number of these from the Gospels. But people who didn't like Jesus would come to him and say, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Here's what people, here's what this is. People would come to Jesus. You are not like we thought the Messiah would be. We thought you'd be like this fire-breathing military hero. And you're not. So you better do something that sort of makes me believe. You do something that will change the framework of my brain. So like I will believe you if you're really real. Sort of make me believe. How did Jesus always respond when people asked him to do stuff like that? He would say things to him like, you're a wicked and perverse generation. Not a compliment. Same sort of Folks. When Jesus was on the cross mocking him from the ground said stuff like this from Mark 15 Let the Christ right if you're the Christ the king of Israel then come on down from the cross now then we will see and believe You don't want to be like these this group of people these two examples Folks if you are someone who says or who thinks or, or it just works the way out of their conscience this way, until I understand everything about God, until I can grasp everything He does and why He would do this and why He doesn't do this, I am out. That's who you become. We had better be able to believe in the one we are to believe in without understanding everything He says and does and decides. Or we will be left mocking Him from the foot of the cross. I'm not going to follow you unless you do what I say. And finally, whenever we look at it just seems like this is so unjust. God ordered the extermination of a bunch of kids. It seems so unfair and so unjust that this big, mean God can be up in heaven and pronounce that kind of judgment on innocents. So unfair, so unjust. We always have to remember that the greatest injustice of all was not done to the Amalekites. It was not done to to any other band of Canaanites running around, the greatest injustice of all was God to himself and the person of his son. We can read passages like this and think, "This is awful. There's no way I could do what Saul was asked to do. That's fair. It's okay to think, man, this is so unpalatable, but here's the comforting thing. God did not just stay in heaven and pronounce judgment on everyone. God entered into this broken mess of a world and allowed the judgment of God to fall on him. See, when Jesus went to the cross and all of the sins of mankind were placed on him, that's what Peter says, our sins went on his body on the tree. Is that a lot of sin or a little sin? It's like Jesus looked just like the Amalekites to his father. And Jesus took all of whatever judgment Saul and his army could have poured out on the Amalekites, God can do worse. And he did it to him That he might spare that from us. The injustice was that Jesus didn't deserve any of that. The the Amalekites did, and far worse, and so do I, and far worse. The only injustice we read of God doing in the in the Bible is that He punished the only innocent person who ever lived as if he had sinned all the sins of all of the rest of us. And that's why some of us have a hope better than the Amalekites because he keeps his promises. He delivered the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the serpent, crusher, the curse, reverser. And he put him to death under the wrath of God instead of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the whole counsel of Scripture, even the hard parts. Thank you that somehow you are still good, even when you do what First Samuel fifteen three tells us you you did. God, thank you for your grand, uh, unthinkable, unfathomable wisdom that we can't understand. God, help us with the betrayal barrier. Help us uh, in our hearts and our minds to trust you so much that even when our world gets turned upside down, it just cannot shake us from trusting you. And God, thank you for the injustice of the cross where we were set free because Jesus was punished. God, grow us in faith and trust in the one who is always good, even when we don't understand. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand up and we will finish.